the bar is set so low. People are so distracted, so agitated, that if we can just try to be a little bit more present to the moment to make eye contact and not be hurried, I think there's an incredible opportunity for us and really for the gospel. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast, and I'm really excited to welcome David back to the podcast. I've missed you, man. I know. It's good to be back. It's been a crazy season with the transition and the move and a lot of, you know, just getting adjusted, but it's, I've missed this of hearing your silky smooth voice through the microphone and just hanging out and getting back into the swing of things with the podcast. So it's really good to be back. Um, and I'm excited to talk about this week's episode. Yeah. So we are talking about hurry. I had an awesome conversation with John Mark Comer and uh, I'm just hearing about his book everywhere. The ruthless elimination of hurry, which is a Dallas Willard statement given to John Orberg and then passed down third hand to John Mark and a lot of, others. Um, and I just, I had similar thoughts from Eugene Peterson as, as I spent time with him and got that privilege of just always slowing down was somewhere in the conversation and how hurry is really, um, catching up with us in leadership and in our culture today. So David, how are you seeing hurry affect us as a culture and as leaders? Well, it's been affecting me just honestly in this last, you know, I guess three months since the move, I have been moving at a pace that's unsustainable. So this topic, this podcast is a gut punch for me because even though I know we talk about this stuff all the time and that's what, you know, I hope our listeners understand that even though we talk about this, we don't always, we don't always live it or take it to heart. There are moments I forget. So I've been moving at a hurried pace, um, trying to do too much in the beginning um, and I don't know what it's, you know, what even the the deeper thing behind that is, whether, you know, trying to prove myself in the early months, um, seeing kind of all the things that I can address or uh, press into um, coffee dates and breakfasts and lunch with, you know, the, the people in my community that I get to, which have been amazing, but the pace has been too much. And so um, it's been a good thing for me to reflect on personally is to slow down that not everything is urgent. And in fact, the important things in our life shouldn't be urgent because it often produces anxiety and uh, we end up doing things um, really not to the best of our ability um, because we're not taking our time with it and slowing down and make, making sure that um, we're pressing into it with the care and the time that, that it needs. So yeah, that's a little confession time, but this season has been one of urgency and hurry and a, and a bit of anxiety. And so I'm reflecting on that and and how I need to shift and how I need to um, adjust my schedule and my rhythms so that it's more um, sustainable as far as the pace that I'm going. So yeah, I mean, culturally it's, it's there and I feel it for myself in this transition, but it, it goes broader than just my personal. How do you, how do you see it in culture? Yeah. I mean, we're both you and I in the leadership business, the people business, you're a pastor. I lead stay forth designs and coach people all week long. And so I think the irony is that we could actually be hurried with good things and um, people pick that up. I think that's the the danger. Anybody listening who is in the people business, the leadership business of any kind, 
um, people are picking up on our hurry, our pace, our rush. My kids pick up on it. Um, so I think, you know, in micro for me, it is always going to be my default setting is going to be to do more. And you're right, somewhere below that, there's insecurity. I'm not doing enough. It's not going fast enough. I think the cultural norms of just warp speed, get it done. Um, if it's not done an hour from now, what does it matter kind of thing? Um, and just how current we want to stay in our culture. So I definitely think that, I mean, we're practitioners, we're in the trenches on this. Um, and like you said, we do not have this covered guys. This is such a needed message right now. There's a slew of books about to come out as well about this. The publishing world's about 18 months behind, um, reality in this current moment. So there's a bunch of books coming out. We obviously have anxiety issues. We have pressures on us. Uh, and this is just an awesome conversation. I talk about introversion and extroversion with John Mark and maybe how that affects us. I talk about the pastoral vocation with him and even just the idea that he lives in a city. You live in a more rural place. I live in urban, suburban Colorado Springs, and it's going to affect all of us differently, but there is something for all of us, not only in his book, but I think in this episode. So I absolutely both loved the conversation and got my butt kicked by the conversation. So I hope you enjoy our conversation with John Mark Comer on the idea of hurry, pace, and not living a rushed life. Well, John Mark, thanks for coming on Right Side Up Leadership Podcast today. So nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, first of all, man, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for this book. I know what an investment it is uh, to write a book. And so for chaining yourself to the desk and having to you know, get away with all the responsibilities you have, um, there at the church and with your family, uh, this gift, uh, this book is a gift uh, already to so many leaders that I know. So thanks for that. Oh, that's incredibly kind. And uh, I, actually, I love writing. So uh, thank you for caring that anybody, I feel like anybody who reads it, I should just say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Investing some time uh, in it together. No, seriously, I'm hearing so many leaders, especially pastors um, who are who are picking it up and uh, so grateful that this, it comes so close to our heart at Stay Force. So thank you for that. Um, why don't you just start with the backstory? Where does the title come from? Yeah, so it's, it's a pretty familiar story if you run in similar circles to I do, but it comes from a conversation between the philosopher Dallas Willard and John Orberg in the late 90s, when John was on staff, I believe, at Willow Creek Community Church, and was just kind of getting sucked into the hurry, the busyness, the overload, the exhaustion, of kind of the machine that is leadership and at times is church culture or whatever. And that, that followers of Jesus are not immune to, you know, any more than a secular leader. And so he calls up Willard out in California, as I understand the story. And this is both, and you can pick it up in his books. And I've since become friends with John. And so in conversations as well, and basically asks, you know, in his own language, what do I need to do? And there's a long kind of silence on the other end of the line, because John told me uh, with Willard, there was always a long silence, meaning he was just notorious for being like really present and um, slow, but not in the pejorative sense. And then Willard said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And there was another long silence. And, you know, Orberg said, all right, what else is there? And, and Willard said, there is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And um, I don't know, that story just really struck a very deep 
record in my life, in my autobiography, in my felt experience of life and leadership. And uh, I, I feel like I've spent, you know, half a decade plus trying to recover from that one line. And uh, hence the book. Awesome. And um, I actually had the opportunity to meet Willard, the late, great Dallas Willard. And I remember being so struck by his groundedness, like what you're talking about, that he truly cared. And even just in the few minutes that I was talking with him, that he truly cared to answer the question well and rightly. And I secondly, I remember his Bible, that his Bible was just so worn. I remember looking over his shoulder and saying, man, how many good thoughts have jumped off the page right there that have impacted, you know, thousands, especially of leaders within the space. So, yes, just from his time. Yeah. And for those of you listening, if you're not familiar, um, Gary Moon, who is a fantastic writer and psychologist in his own right and was a mentee of Willard's, has written a biography, Becoming Dallas Willard. And it is just beautifully researched, well-written, and it is the most compelling story. You know, Willard comes from poverty, from trauma, from pain, from really rough upbringing. And to read his story and his spiritual formation into the kind of Dallas Willard that we think of Dallas Willard, which was all very late, like, 50 plus in his life, in his 50s and his 60s before his death. Um, I, I can't, you know, whether you're a, a pastor or not, doesn't even matter. He wasn't a pastor, he was a philosopher. But it's just, it is, I can't say enough good about that biography. It's so compelling. Mm, beautiful. I have to to check that out. So, John Mark, uh, you have kids, which probably would be enough to be hurried and busy. Uh, you live in a very post Christian city, do important work with Bridgetown. Uh, you're a pastor, you have responsibility. So I'm curious, what was the most convicting chapter or idea to write about in this book? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think that the stuff on simplicity and not just like simplicity with your wardrobe or the stuff in your house, that's pretty straightforward, but simplicity with your time and your budget and your commitments. And there's a whole piece in the book, um, which is kind of my nod to Scazzaro, about the tension between reaching your full potential and accepting your limitations. And, you know, the kind of, um, as a way of reading Genesis three and the temptation as a temptation to transgress Adam and Eve's limitations, to go outside the boundaries of the life that God had set before them and to attempt to become gods. And, uh, and that like innate human temptation to transgress our limitations. I, I quote uh, Scazzaro's beautiful line, we find God's will for our life and our limitations, uh, which nobody says other than Pete, you know, I mean, literally nobody talks that way. There's all sorts of talk about reach your full potential, which is great. I'm all for it. In particular for people that don't come from a white male middle-class background. But um, I think just as much needs to be said about accepting our limitations as both are kind of a signpost to God's call in our life. And that was, that was, and still is the most like, Oh, cut to the heart thing on, uh, you know, like, cause it's really a struggle for me to, to live, you know, under in the same way that I want to live under my, my financial margins, living under my time man margins and accepting my limitations. That is, it was either that was the hardest thing to write or the, is still the most convicting, or there's some stuff in there on interruptions and C.S. Lewis idea of, you know, how you respond to an interruption is who you really are 
in particular as a parent, that's just, and a high J and the Myers-Briggs, that's just like cut to the heart for me. Yep. Every parent right now is like either nodding or turning this podcast. Oh on. yeah. I mean, 90% of parenting is how you respond to interruptions. And I normally respond with agitation or, you know, lack of presence or annoyance rather than with the compassion and wisdom and presence that we see in Jesus. And most of the stories in the gospels are interruptions. So this is something we have to, we have to approach, you know, yeah. as part of our life with Jesus. Yeah. It's interesting as you're talking about complexity uh, and simplicity, I love your thoughts on simplicity and even, you know, minimalism and so much right now seems to be arcing back toward simplicity. So how is our complexity of life right now getting in the way of abundant life or the good life? Yeah, I mean, I just think it's it's the basic stuff. You don't need to be a rocket science right scientist or write the book on it to kind of connect the dots between more stuff and and minimalism isn't just about less stuff. It's about less activities, less commitments, less complexity, but more stuff, more commitments, more relationships, more complexity means um, less time, less margin, less presence to the moment, less peace less joy, less deep relationships, less time for prayer and rest, you know? So I think for sure, you know, materialism, like it's pretty clear that one of the main drivers of the kind of emotional crisis we're in as a generation with just burnout, fatigue, anxiety, stress, mental health, and the spiritual crisis that we're in, secularism, Christians who don't feel God's presence anymore, et cetera, et cetera, moral crises, collapse of leaders, it's pretty clear, you know, there's a, there's a couple like villains, so to say, in the, in the murder mystery of emotional health and spiritual life, you know, and for sure one is the iPhone and Silicon's Valley business model of addiction and distraction. For sure one is secularism and it's kind of, you know, corrosive worldview to the soul and to margin. And, you know, for sure one is the kind of what, you know, the philosopher of Jung Chul Han calls an achievement society are kind of like everything's about, hey, what's your name? What do you do? Our self-worth is often derived from accomplishment and accumulation. But I think less attention is paid to just how materialism actually has killed not only spiritual life, but has killed actually emotional health. Because most of us just assume more stuff equals more happiness. And we forget that more stuff also can equal more stress, more distraction, more complexity, less time, less presence, less peace, you know? So I, I think it's one that secular people are talking about as much as Christians. And I think that's just a nod to the validity or the wisdom of this ancient Christian and not just Christian um, practice of simplicity. Those are such timeless messages in, in many ways, but incredibly timely right now. Uh, and And if you had to say, John Mark, what is underneath all our hurry? I mean, like the deep problem below the problem, what would you say? Yeah, I mean, I quote uh, Ortberg in the book has that great line, hurry isn't just a sign of a disordered schedule, it's a sign of a disordered heart. And I think the question that you just asked is the, that's the spot on question, because we want to think that hurry is just a function of adulthood and our phone and Silicon Valley's model to distract us and, you know, work and our responsibility. And for sure, that would be an issue if there was nothing underneath there. But I think for a lot of us, and there's not, a, there's not one answer to this, 
Um, but for a lot of us, if not the vast majority of us, underneath the kind of top layer of just the logistical is a much deeper level of the psycho-spiritual where often we're in a hurry and we say yes too much for any number of reasons. It could be that we're driven by ego and ambition, not by love. It could be that we're running from a deep father wound. I mean, I just read a fascinating survey the other day of the disproportionate number of CEOs and high functioning leaders that have deep father wounds. And this is just as true of like mega church pastors as it is the CEOs of companies, you know, often the most driven, the most ambition, and therefore at least early in life, the most successful leaders are those that have deep, like under the current insecurity, low self-worth, the sense that I have to go out and win, or I have to succeed, or I have to become famous, or I have to get ahead in order to feel good about who I am. You know, It could be people-pleasing and a fear that we let people down. It could be an anxiety of intimacy. We're scared that if we don't say yes to every single person, every single thing, people will reject us and or, or it could be a fear of being alone, like secular people in particular. And this, uh, this is a massive influence on all of us who just live in a secular age, are scared to kind of be alone and quiet with their own emotions, their own thoughts, their own desires. Because the secular worldview is, I mean, it's terrifying if you actually take it seriously, that life has no meaning, has no purpose. It's all just an accident. You're going to die. There's no future. Like that's a really hard reality for most, not all, but for most people to sit with. And so it's much easier to turn on Netflix or do another late night email flurry or cram in another activity. So I think all that to say, hurry is an invitation, not just to slow down our life and craft the rule of life and say no to things and practice Sabbath. It's really an invitation to meet God underneath the surface where our soul is still disordered and in disequilibrium, and there's still, we have not come to, you know, inner peace is the classic language, but really just come to peace with God and with ourself and with our life as it actually is. Yeah, so, so helpful, so true. I mean, the the through line that I heard in your whole message, John Mark, is resistance, is that this declares war on the cultural norms of today, and that you know, to live right side up in this upside down world, in this upside down kingdom is constant resistance. Talk a little bit more about that. Like, what does it actually take to, to live this unhurried life? Yes. I mean, hence the name, the ruthless elimination of hurry. It's, you know, because I think Christians especially go wrong because a lot of times our model of change is like information plus inform- plus inspiration plus willpower, you know, like Give me the information, the Bible, the truth or whatever, inspire me, and then I'll go out and do it. And that's like, it's just the New Year's resolution, you know, kind of thing that doesn't work. You know, it just is very ineffective at deep change in the soul. And um, so I think you do have to be ruthless or Berg. Again, if if I was making money off of this podcast, he would need to get a royalty. But um, but he had that great line in the foreword to my book. He said to choose to live an unhurried life in the modern era is kind of like choosing to take a vow of poverty in an earlier era, just in that it's a radical call because it's against all of the inertia of Western culture and the digital age and secularism and the demands of adulthood and family life. It's real like, so you really have to take a, maybe aggressive isn't the right word, but a, a counter-cultural ruthless kind of intentional 
step forward. At a practical level, I, I, I think the answer is very simple. I think it's rule of life, which was the dominant conversation in the church, as, as far as I can tell, from kind of after the Nicene Creed to the Protestant Reformation. And um, it's, an, it's an alien or a foreign concept to a lot of non-Catholic Christians in the West. It was not on my radar until much later in life, and I'm happy to explore yeah, it. Can, you, want, can you explain what a rule that, of life is? That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, just I don't want to bore people that are, that are well-versed in it, but it, again, it was not on my radar for many years. So a rule of life is ancient language, not modern. It's rule of life, singular, not rules for life, plural. So it's not a list of rules. It's rule, the original Latin word that was used was regula, which is where we get the English words regular and ruler. And it, it, it literally kind of meant a straight line. A number of scholars hypothesized, though they don't know for sure, that it was the word used in the kind of ancient Mediterranean for a trellis under a vine in a winery. And it was based on the word picture of Jesus in John 15, abide in the vine, bear much fruit, or remain in me. If I remain in you, you will bear much fruit, which I would argue is basically Jesus' central teaching on spiritual formation. It's a word picture, not a, you know, theological essay, but it's Jesus' teaching on how the process by which we grow and mature and change to become more like him and bear, in his language, fruit, which is later defined right there. It's defined by him as love, and it's later elaborated on by Paul in his riff on John 15, that is Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And so if you play with that metaphor of, all right, how do we bear fruit? We're like a vine, like a winery. We abide in the branch. You know, we're the branch. We abide in the vine. Then if you think about it, if you've ever been to a winery, there's not, you know, the vines are not like down on the ground, just growing wild, right? And have you've never been on a hike and just all of a sudden come across this lush like vineyard just growing off of the ground. For a vine to grow and to bear the maximum amount of fruit, you need to get it up off the ground because on the ground, it will just it will bear a fraction of the fruit that it's capable of, and it will be vulnerable to wild animals and to disease. You have to get it up off the ground. You have to create space for it really to breathe. You have to kind of index it in your desired direction. I want you to kind of grow in this direction. And then it's capable of so much more fruit. And so early followers of Jesus, and I'm talking, you know, St. Benedict made it the most famous in the 6th century, but it goes back to Augustine in the 4th, it goes back to St. Patrick in the 2nd or the 3rd, like this is a very ancient idea, it said we need some kind of a um, trellis for the vineyard that is our life with Jesus. We need some kind of a support structure to make space for us to abide in Jesus, to live a life of prayer and to keep us from disease, from you know vulnerability, all of that. And so they called that a rule of life. And I would just define a rule of life as a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms that make space in our life for abiding and allow us to live in deep alignment with our really our deepest values. And, um, so I think the nice thing about a rule of life is even if you're new to that language, you already have a rule of life. Everybody does. Whether it's in, the question is not, do you have a rule of life? It's, do you know what your rule of life is? And is it intentional or unintentional? Is it conscious or subconscious? Is it moving you in the direction you want to go? Or is it actually at odds with your deepest desires? And what I mean by everybody has a rule of life is everybody has like a morning routine, Kind of, this is, you know, if you sleep next to your phone, 
as 93% of Americans do. And if you check it first thing upon waking as 76% of Americans do, and you look at news, email, and social media, that's a rule of life. You've, that's a decision you've made, conscious or not, that's in your muscle memory, in your, it's habituated, it's shaping the person that you're becoming by waking up in that way. Most people have a way they spend their night, a relationship with TV. Most people have some kind of a budget, a way they spend money. Most people have a rough time they go to bed or exercise or don't exercise, a rough diet or lack thereof, a way they spend the weekend. So, that, so you have a rule of life, all of us do. The question is, is it set up to really index us to grow and mature toward a life where we abide and we bear much fruit? Or is it actually set up for exhaustion, burnout, distraction, secularism, addiction, so on and so forth, shallow relationships. And so that's where whatever, whatever the solution is for hurry, digital distraction, overload, I, my firm conviction is that rule of life is the tip of the spear. It's the main thing we're working on at our church right now. We're teaching on this as well as working on developing a rule of life for our church, kind of basically like a church order we're exploring, like what would a low church Protestant version of a church order like the Jesuits or the Carmelites or the Franciscans look like in our kind of vein of the church where to join our church would basically be to join a church order. We don't have membership. It would be like, yes, I sign up for the order this year. I'm in, I'm living by the rule as a way to really index my heart toward Jesus. I love that. And I'd love to hear kind of how that, develops as well. I mean, intentional rhythms, you have rhythms of your life. Are you intentional with them? And would you sign off on them at the end of the day saying they're important? And what's interesting is I'm, when people ask me about sort of the state of uh, kingdom leaders right now, I'm both encouraged and discouraged. I'm discouraged that the, the level of overwhelm is everywhere. And I'm, and I'm discouraged at that. And yet I think we could be on the edge simultaneously of a health movement as well. Like that right now you and many others are writing and pushing into this space. Pete Scazzaro, others are saying we have to take this seriously. And I look back even 15, 20, 30 years, a lot of people leading the way were in the business productivity space, you know, the coveys of, of the world important versus urgent. And so we had to sort of grab secular language to be able to talk about intentional rhythms so that people could identify. And I love that we're actually producing not just information, but formation that others can, can come along with. So I love that conversation. And there's so many gaps. I see the gap um, becoming much narrower between, you know, maybe afraid of being too Catholic or too high church, but saying something is inherently wrong. And when you get, when you get desperate, you're open to new possibilities, you know, like That's right. when you're desperate, it's like, the fear of Catholicism or whatever, which I don't think is a, is, is a, is a big thing for my generation, but I think that goes away. Yeah. Nobody would say, yes, uh, this is the abundant life. I think everybody's living wholeheartedly right now, you know, and we have a problem. And, uh, and again, thanks for pushing into this space. I'm excited to see kind of how Bridgetown as well comes around this. Um, I don't want to oversimplify, uh, here, but I do want to, to dig in on this just a little bit. I'm curious on this. You're an introvert. I'm an extrovert. I'm curious how you think hurry affects introverts and extroverts differently. Mm, yeah, it would. Mm, that's a great one. Well, I, it's going to affect them differently emotionally, but likely in a similar way um, as far as the uh, the output or the function or the consequences of it. 
you know, so I was just recently with a psychologist and um, I was saying some fascinating thing about introversion, extroversion. And he was explaining at a like neurobiological biological level why it is that introverts are so exhausted by people. And the common myth is that, you know, extroverts are relational and introverts don't care about people. And actually, if you're friends with introverts and extroverts, often your experience will be the exact opposite. And introversion and extroversion has nothing to do with how relational you are. It has nothing to do with how outgoing or shy you are. It has nothing to do, like, you know, Suzanne Kane has that great, you know, quadrilateral of, you know, introvert, extrovert, shy, outgoing. If you can put that on a, on a you know, four direction axis point and how you can have outgoing introverts, that's what I am. And you can have shy, and yes, and you can have shy extroverts as well. Like I have a daughter who's really quiet and shy and sweet, but super extroverted. She always wants to be around people 24 hours of the day, right? So um, she's a shy extrovert, it's beautiful. So um, anyway, he was just saying that, you know, it's a myth that introverts don't care about people and they're shy, that many introverts care a ton about people, are, are deeply relational and are very outgoing. But the way that the introvert brain is set up, and this is of all the psychological differential psychology, this is the one that, you know, holds up best to like empirical research. A lot of the other ones have almost zero validation and are wildly, you know, unreliable statistically. But this one pretty much is. But he was explaining that the way the introvert brain is set up, you bring your full attention to each person. So when you're with somebody, you're just like your full mental and emotional powers are just brought to that person. And you're deeply with that person. You're attentive to that person. And you really are invested emotionally with how that conversation goes that's why if it feels like it wasn't deep or it feels like small talk or it feels like nothing really shifted in the conversation, not only do you feel like it was a waste of your time, but you actually feel tired by it or sad by it. Whereas an extrovert is more like they're more open-ended. They're more, um, they're, they're more open to experience. They, they bring less emotionally. They often can be far more distractible. And they bring less emotionally, and so they're 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 more they can roll with the punches better. Like if the conversation was shallow and boring, cool. Let's what's the next conversation? We're on to the next thing. So it's not a it's not a you don't want to moralize it because they're both they're both beautiful, they're both good, and we need both in community. And introverts need to kind of mature toward extroversion, and extroverts the other way. But all that to say, I think that for an introvert, it's maybe a little there's more of a, an emotional felt need of, oh yes, I need to slow down, I need margin. But then the call will really be to go out and, and be present with people in love and move toward action. But for the extrovert, I actually think even if there's not the same felt need because they're energized more by stimulation and activity and the external world and people and new relationships, it, the, the call might not be as felt at an emotional level, but it's just as strong because the, the extrovert is more susceptible to living a kind of shallow. If the introvert is susceptible to just hiding and becoming introverted, introspective and, and narcissistic and locked up in themselves, the extrovert is more susceptible to becoming shallow, not having deep relationships, not bringing their full attention to a moment, not paying good attention to their soul, what's underneath it and living kind of at a surface level of busyness. So I think it, the felt need is going to be very different um, when we talk about hurry for an introvert and an extrovert, but the end term result of becoming people of love and presence and attention is almost identical. That would be my kind of spiel. Sure. 
Yeah, man, so much more to explore there. How does that hit you as an extrovert? Give me your, your honest feedback on that. I'd love to hear your thoughts. 100% agree. And anyone who's researching that is way smarter than me anyway. But I think that for my wife and I, that that holds up. We weren't prepared for how we were going to need to recharge differently, what an ideal Friday night is, uh, you know, what a Saturday looks like. Like, oh, this is energizing to me. Oh, that is a beatdown to me, you know, and having to figure yes. that out. Married to an expert, so I know what you mean. So that's, oh, it's been so helpful. Um, and also in many ways, just saying, man, she feels so much more spiritual uh, to me because she's so present with people in a way that I have to struggle to be that present with people. So yeah, I absolutely think it's connected. I'm amazed though in in trainings or coaching, how many people don't even know if they're an introvert or extrovert. Um, again, not to stake the whole world on it, but just that think it's a social thing and um, versus and we have to know how we uh, actually recharge, refresh. It comes back to Sabbath. So much of what's in your book um, has to do with this. So guys, I don't want to spoil the whole book. We can't, we don't have enough time. Um, please go buy the book, but I want to ask some, just some of these auxiliary questions around it. Um, I'm curious, uh, it's fascinating, but really your thoughts on empathy. I loved that as well, John Mark. So what's the connection between empathy and slowing down? Oh, yeah, man, that's a great one. I think especially for those of us listening in America in an election year, I think this is a really important conversation. You know, um, and again, I'm not a psychologist and I, I read just enough to be dangerous. But empathy is basically it's tied to compassion in that it's a feeling word. So um, it, compassion and love, for example, are different in the library of scripture, a little bit different than they are in modern English, where compassion is a feeling word and love is more of an action word. That's why love can be commanded, um, but compassion is more like an inner kind of emotional disposition that you, that you can cultivate, but you can't command. And compassion and empathy are, are really both feeling words. They require that we feel another person's, that people feel felt, that we sit with another person and we feel what they feel and we see an issue or disagreement or a political debate or interpersonal, you know, hang up or foible from another person's perspective. And the reality is that just takes time. And the more complex an issue or relationship is, the more time it takes. Like I'm pretty apolitical. I'm Anabaptist in my theology, which is maybe just a cop out. And, but I'm shocked when I read the news how very complex issues, I mean, whatever the modern world is, it's complex. Globalization, multicultural, you know, the information economy, like this is, it's, all of this is very complex. We're not living a kind of village life where everybody is in the same kind of bracket and the same ethnic group and the same religious faith, it's a very complex world. So when people throw out one-liners, you know what I mean, that take a complex issue like immigration or like economic theory or whatever and truncate it down to a hashtag. I'm just, even if I agree with the overall perspective, I'm just shocked that people would simplify and it, 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 and it loses all credibility. But often I think people just don't have the time to actually, you know, really think through the complexity yeah. of an issue. And if that's true at a political level, yep. it's even more true, I think, at, a, at an interpersonal level. So I think the connection between empathy or compassion and hurry is if we're always in a rush, if 
first off, the main emotions that we feel when we live in chronic hurry are anger and anxiety. And we lose our capacity for the full bandwidth of emotions, things like wonder, awe, gratitude, you know, transcendence, and, and really empathy. These are the first emotions to go in a life of speed. And we're just kind of left with this little anxious, easily, easily agitated, even if we're a happy-go-lucky personality, easily agitated kind of bandwidth of emotions, which are the kind of big emotions that take over the other ones. And we just don't have time to slow down. And if anything I've learned as a pastor and as an introvert, a lot of this stuff doesn't, it's, it's, it's just not intuitive to me. I've had to really learn it is that, you know, psychologists use the language of feeling felt and argue that when you listen with attention and compassion to another person, even if you disagree with 90% of what they say, if they feel felt at a neurobiological level, it's almost indistinguishable from feeling loved. Yep. So you can sit with somebody and even if at the end of the conversation you say, I disagree with nine of the 10 things you just said, if you can sit with them in an unhurried way and really give them your attention and listen with compassion, not with like this raging judgment or contempt in your spirit, but listen with compassion. Even if at the end of the day, you both say, yeah, we disagree. You will likely hug each other and walk out and go have a beer or feel good. Yep. Like, or people will feel loved by you. It's this, it's bizarre. And it's, it's like this Christian superpower that I think we have to tap into through the spirit of Jesus. So good. So good. And uh, the bar is low today. So I have to believe that 10 minutes of listening means more than it did 10 years ago. Right. I mean, Oh yes. I mean, you see this, like my wife and I have this like little minor mission in life to like basically be nice to cashiers and people at the grocery store and other places. Because, you know, if you just look around, most people are hurried through, they're on their phone while they're like trying to pay for their groceries or whatever. And so it, I mean, again, the bar, as you're saying, is set so low to where if you'll just like not have your phone out, smile, make eye contact and ask a few questions of your barista or your checker at Trader Joe's or whatever, it is shocking the level of the things that people will tell us the relationships that will be built, the people that will want to come along to Alpha or to church. I mean, it's just yes. shocking because I think, as you just said, the bar is set so low. People are so distracted, so agitated, so grumpy a lot of the time, so treat one another like machines that if we can just try to be a little bit more present to the moment to make eye contact and not be hurried, I think there's an incredible opportunity for us and really for the gospel. Yes. We do a lot of work in our neighborhood. I mean, it really is our parish. And uh, I have this phrase, take comfort, my friends, the bar is low. And uh, like it used to be, I don't know if bread used to be the normal thing. I grew up in the South. So it was like, there's maybe a high bar there, but it's like, man, if you were to have a one minute conversation with somebody walking their dog and slow down, they might be like, we're buds. Like literally they've moved into the friend category, which is so sad and so encouraging all at the same time. Uh, to me, I, I do think we have an opportunity. Um, and John Mark, I loved uh, the podcast and listening through you and Jeff Bethke. Uh, phenomenal job putting um, hurry and hustle together. If you guys haven't heard that, fight hustle and hurry, um, kind of a micro podcast, what, 11 episodes in there? Yes. Yeah, that sounds right. I think 10 or 11 episodes. Yeah. 
So good. Appreciated that. Love to hear both of your angles. Uh, so talk about hustle for just a second, maybe steal off of anything Jeff has said. Uh, why has hustle gotten so out of hand today? Yeah. And that's Jeff's language, not mine. And the title of his book is fantastic. It's to hell with the hustle. And, you know, Jeff, I'm writing as kind of a, a pastor teacher. Jeff's in that kind of author, entrepreneur, internet startup kind of guy. And, you know, in that world, in particular, in the internet entrepreneurial world, everything's about hustle. Everything's about efficiency, hack, get out, grind it out, get your thing, achieve your dreams. And in many ways, Jeff is the quintessential example of that as a very successful, you know, 20 something or maybe he's 30 now. I can't remember how old he is. And um, wonderful guy. But I think what he's just sounding the alarm saying, man, this is not a sustainable pace of life. And, and, and in fact, what if what for many, in particular in the entrepreneurial space, but what if what for many in Western culture is a virtue, hustle, is actually a vice? What if it's actually rooted in greed and ego and ambition and distractibility and a, a prioritization for success over relationships, career success, that is? And so I think for him, it was really not a call to laziness, not a call to, you know, just be independently wealthy and chill out, but it was a call to kind of redefine the metrics for success. Awesome. So good. I, I think I'm going to write a book called To Laziness. Recapturing the, the ancient art of apathy. Oh, Sometimes goodness. the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. And I wholeheartedly believe that. But you know, what I've been... What I've been thinking about a lot lately, because that's I get that pushback a lot. Well, are you just like, what if people listen to your thing? What about urgency? What about the kingdom of God? What about the lost? Will people just become kind of introspective contemplatives who just sit around and do centering prayer all day long and navel gaze and go to their therapist every other day? And, you know, that's a fear-based reaction. And, 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 that's, and I think there is a legitimate, maybe fear is not the right word, but that is a legitimate problem. Like the, the bell... The reactivity thing, the bell could swing, like the pendulum could swing over to the opposite extreme, though I think for the vast majority of people, it's the opposite problem. But I really like, you know, the Catholics point out, the Catholics talk about there's a tension between the contemplative life and the active life, between contemplation and action, and how you have to have both. And they point out that the opposite of a contemplative life isn't action, it's reaction. So the opposite of contemplative, so like a big thing for me is contemplative leadership. I think that's the language that I would use. And the opposite of contemplative leadership is not activity. It's not, okay, I'm not praying or Sabbathing. I'm out starting these new things and doing these new ventures and launching new ministries or businesses or whatever, meeting with people or changing the world, preaching the gospel. The opposite of a contemplative life is a reactive life where you just react to the hurry, the busyness, the tyranny, the urgent, that grumpy email, that social media alert, that alert on your phone, that new opportunity, that new thing you want to buy. It's just this reactive kind of tyranny of the urgent getting sucked into hurry kind of life. And that, whether you want to call it hurry or hustle or reactivity or whatever, that's the thing that we want to be wary of as we still really fight to live in the tension of both contemplation and yeah. action or retreat and return, or a life of prayer and rest and margin, and a life of urgency and, and meaningful yeah. work in the kingdom, however you want to phrase it. So good. We say proactive versus reactive. And how many people's lives are running them? You get to the end of the day and say, what did I actually do today? Like, And it's urgent versus important. 
again, I love John Mark. This is coming into the, the Christian space to say our fathers and mothers, of the church had a whole lot to say about this, that we're a little late to the game uh, in this. So, so, so good. Just a couple more uh, thoughts and questions for us. So if somebody says, my life is out of control, I'm reactive, I'm going way too fast. I, I have a hurried posture and I need to slow down. Where would you encourage them to start? Well, it depends. I mean, you have to start where you are, not where you feel you should be. And so it's, it's better to be honest about yourself than it is to, uh, what I think Margaret Gunther calls it first day of Lent syndrome. To where then to be like, I'm going to change everything and go crazy. And then you make it three days and you crash and burn. Yeah. So it would be better to just like start with one very, for a lot of people, it would be best to just start with one or two very small changes. Like don't sleep next to your phone. And when you wake, read a Psalm before you do anything else. You know, something very doable. James Clear and Atomic Habits has a bunch of practical stuff about habit stacking and how habits build on top of each other and start with something really small and easy and then let it kind of work its way up. So start with just not sleeping next to my phone and then add in a psalm and then add in a cup of coffee or, you know, like just slowly build your way in. And then if you do feel you have the capacity, I do think that there is something to be said with like the, the 30, 31 day kind of radical reset. So like Cal Newport, um, have, you, have you read his newest work, Digital Minimalism? Love anything Cal has ever written. I know. He's just a genius. And, you know, he one of the things I appreciate about him is he, he, he doesn't have to play pastor, so he can just be really straight up. So he basically says, you know, the phone is designed for distraction and addiction. And so to, to, to let it become a tool and not let yourself become a tool of whatever company in Silicon Valley it's, it's like, it's a radical shift. And so he basically says, you can't just like through willpower, try to be on your phone less. You have to like reset the system. So he starts with what he calls a digital detox, which is, I think it's 31 days where you basically turn everything off except what would get you fired for work, you know? So it might be, you only use text messages, your actual phone and email on your laptop for 30 day, 31 days. That's all you do. You know, no social media, no internet, sort of like whatever. So that's obviously really radical for people. But in an ideal world, I think something like a, a 31 day reset, like if you can tie it to a vacation or something like that, where you just shut off as many activities, commitments, distractions as you possibly can, and then try to sculpt a rule of life and then try to come back with a radically new posture. So if you're like super type A and you're coming up on a vacation or you feel like you have the emotional capacity for that, that would probably be ideal. But I think for most people, just start very small and bring some other people in to hold you accountable and you know, read Atomic Habits by James Clear or whatever and just from a Christian perspective and just begin to slowly make changes in your life and recognize that you never arrive. It's always a moving target. And it's constantly against the inertia of culture. So you just have to constantly kind of work at it as you follow Jesus and do your life. So I don't know. That's, that's my take. Awesome. All right. Last question here. You're talking to 22 year old John Mark Comer. You put your hand on his shoulder and you tell him one thing about hurry. What would you tell him? Oh man, I would think I would, I would just say life is a lot longer than you think it is and a lot harder than you expect it to be. So work hard, but rest even deeper.
and do all of your work out of a place of Sabbath. Prioritize Sabbath and, and let your work flow out of that place of restful centering in God. And you'll go farther, you'll do more, and you'll last longer than if you, if you take the world on like a mountain to be conquered. Beautiful. We're going to end it there like a type of benediction to your young self. Thanks for that. Uh, guys, go pick up the book. Ruthless Elimination of Hurry would also encourage you to listen through the mini podcast series, Fight, Hustle, and Hurry. I think it'd be a great jumpstart on this stuff. John Mark, thanks. Thanks for your investment in leaders in the church and for writing on such a timely issue. It's such a joy, man. Really appreciate you having me on. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing in the world and the way that you're helping leaders in very practical ways. Um, I'm happy to write books and do podcasts and stuff, but what you're doing is really on the ground stuff. And I'm so grateful. So thank you. Thank you. Keep it up. Awesome. You too. As always, uh, another great episode and one that I needed, I know, for my life personally to learn to slow down and to check my pace and my speed and just the urgency that I'm living at. Uh, we want to just leave you with one question for you to wrestle with. And that question is, what's one practical way you're going to slow down? What's one practical way you're going to slow down in your life? That might be something you need to stop or something you need to address in your life. But what's one practical way you're going to slow down? So um, thank you for listening. Uh, we love that you guys are following along and interacting with us. Uh, it encourages us and keeps us um, producing more and more content. So if you have enjoyed this podcast, if it's encouraged you, please share it with a friend. Um, if you haven't subscribed, please do that. That'll give you notifications every time we drop an episode, which is every Tuesday and Thursday. And if you are so kind and inclined, please give us a review. That helps us get seen by more and more listeners and get these great conversations in the earbuds of leaders all over the country and increasingly more so all over the world. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. We focus so long.